It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Looney. Welcome to the Friday edition of Daily Thunder. I am in the 12th part of my series on spiritual lessons from World War II. Uh, I, and I, I've, I've been pondering lately a lot of, like, how far do I take this? It's, it's such an extremely significant thing for me uh, to meditate upon, and it's been very, very powerful for me. But at the same time, I love texture, but this has had a lot of texture. Every message is completely different, and so I, I just go back and forth, and obviously I'm still going, and I have probably at least next week already mapped out, so... I could say at least I'm going through next week, but I could go for a year probably on this. I mean, just think about it. We've, we haven't even hardly started the war uh, in this. And so uh, here's that one message that I promised, the Dunkirk rear guard. Actually, I didn't promise. I hinted at and threatened that I may not ever give it. But uh, I, I am. I'm giving it today. Uh, the Dunkirk rear guard, this is such an unusual message in the light of the other messages very unique, very pithy, very powerful, uh, and I'm just extremely excited uh, as I've just meditated upon this, oh, especially over the past 24 hours. So let's, let's dive into this and just see what God has in store. So there was uh, a story of a missionary that you know, stumbles into a dark uh, hut uh, where this elderly black woman is uh, curled up on her bed, totally forgotten. It's sort of like all of the misery of the world sort of in one little shelter. She's all by herself, and she's on her deathbed. She has extreme rheumatism, and ex- she lives in extreme pain. But this is the song on her lips. Nobody knows the trouble I see. Nobody knows but Jesus. Nobody knows the trouble I see. Sing glory, Hallelujah. Sometimes I'm up, sometimes I'm down, sometimes I'm level on the ground. Sometimes the glory shines around, sing glory, hallelujah. Nobody knows the joys I has, nobody knows but Jesus. There's something about that, that silent suffering, that, that side of life which involves the private sacrifices that we make. Most of us oftentimes only deem sacrifice of value when it's noted by someone, when it's seen by someone, when it's applauded by someone. However, if we truly live by faith, we recognize that what we live for is an applause from the heavenly realm. We are not living for the applause of this earth. And so when we go into the battle of Dunkirk, it is going to be one of the most heralded moments in British history. But what is heralded is oftentimes the brilliance of certain uh, men to you know, call forth the evacuation and uh, the military developments in Great Britain to mobilize thousands upon thousands of uh, ships and you know, to requisition even small fishing boats and to get them over there. And just to co- the coordinated effort is celebrated. It's like a, a picture of what the people of Great Britain can do when they bond together. And as a result, it becomes this legendary memory, and it's even for most people from Great Britain throughout history, they believe it's a miracle. It was. Even uh, Churchill, when he said, if we could get 50,000 men out, 
Uh, they have 200,000 of their BEF, their British Expeditionary Force, in France. If they could get 50,000 out, it would be a miracle. And that was their highest goal. And they end up getting not just all 200,000 out, or, or almost, like I said, I'm not saying they didn't lose any, but they're also going to get out around 100,000 of the French. So, I mean, it's just extraordinary. 300,000 are, uh, are removed from the, the island of, well, from, from the coastline of France and Dunkirk to back to Great Britain. I mean, it's just an extraordinary story in and of itself. And uh, again, just like I'm always hinting, that's not really what my focus is, is just to talk about the great uh, evacuation. It's sort of what goes around the side. That's why I'm calling this the Dunkirk rear guard. There's a reason why they were able to get out. And there's some unsung heroes in this story, which is, it's profound to me. And the unsung side is really what touches me because I feel like in our life as Christians, we're called to the role of the unsung. We're not called to do that which is applauded, that which is noted by the world, that which is stuck on Time Magazine. We're, I'm likely never going to be the sexiest man alive. I remember growing up and seeing you know, Brad Pitt on the front of sexiest, you know, Time Magazine. Oh, it was People Magazine, sexiest man alive. And I remember having this hollow feeling that that would never be me. <laughs> it's like, because I wanted to be. You know, at that point in time, I'm in this unique dynamic of I always wanted to be popular growing up, and I always wanted to be attractive to the world, but God was getting a hold of my life, and there was a dying process to eventually just uh, fully relinquish. I'm never going to be People Magazine's sexiest man alive, <laughs> and that's okay. <laughs> I know, it's a, for all the girls in here, like, why would you want that? Uh, <coughs> but... Secret nobility. Just pa ponder the phrase, secret nobility. In other words, it's one thing to be noble and to do honorable things, but we want them to be noticed. We want our nobility to be cherished by the world around us. We want everyone to look at us and say, now that's nobility. That's honor. That is truly the way a man ought to live. Secret nobility. Doing heroic deeds under the cover of anonymity. Who would do that? Who is crazy enough to do their heroic deeds where no one knows about them, right? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. That's not human. That's right. It's godly. It's heavenly. There's something so precious about this, and every single one of us in here has to acknowledge that the notion is so above us that it causes a glow in the room. It's like, yeah, yeah, like that. So I have the same phrase, secret nobility, but I changed out the lines underneath it to say the highest, most precious form of sacrifice. In other words, there's a form of sacrifice that the world will notice, and it's, there's nothing wrong with that, that the world would say that was well done. That is a picture of Christ. There's nothing wrong with that, that the church sees it. It's that our motive is that we're willing to do it unnoticed, and when it is unnoticed, and, and God seems to even hide it from the views of, of others, and it becomes anonymous in its donation to the cause of Christ, it's the highest, most precious form of sacrifice. So Jesus in Matthew 6 says, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds, your heroic sacrifices before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Isn't that interesting? In other words, if you are doing your charitable deeds, your loving actions before men that they would be seen, then actually you lose your reward. In other words, there's a reward that is given to us. It's like a reward of grace, a reward of a closeness and intimacy with God. It's eternal. 
even. There's something tangible that God desires to give us that is an increase in our life for all eternity. But when we do what we do for the motive of being seen, remember Ananias and Sapphira? They were doing something noble, but then they desired to be seen as sacrificial. They, they, but they hold back something for themselves. They're doing something that's warped. It's self-centered. God puts his finger on it, and bad things happen to Ananias and Sapphira, right? There's something wrong about this motive, yet all of us are very uh, sensitized to the fact that this is what we normally do. Yet, otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, when you do this loving action, when you do this heroic sacrifice, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. So listen to Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward, but when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And you're thinking, well, that's sort of hard to do. How do you do that? In other words, it's not calculated. You are not purposely telling yourself, let's do this, oh, left hand and right hand. Let's conspire to do a noble deed with our right hand and tell our left hand that we're doing it. It's like, left hand, just watch this. In other words, there's no communication. There's no conspiracy. You're doing it out of a pure heart of love. I'm going to do this. Well, what, what if no one sees it? That's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it for Jesus. You're the little drummer boy, and you're playing your best for him in the stable before Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, what if no one ever hears it, even though it's your best that you've ever played and it's not ever going to be captured in a recording and put on an album? Does that matter? You're doing it for Jesus. That your charitable deed may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. So this concept of in secret is an interesting dimension of the Christian life. You know, one of the things I've said to people, you know, because... Being a nonprofit, people give to Ellerslie. And one of the things I've said is that there's a time for anonymous and there's a time for actually doing it as an individual giving to someone. And there's something powerful about both. The in secret is an issue personally. The, the reason I always like people to say that they gave to someone else is because of the bond of fellowship and relationship that comes out of it. Both have value. And I, I think... In secret is this concept of being willing to do what you do in everything. You're giving, you're serving, your noble deeds, your heroic sacrifices unto God where no one else would know. But at the same time, there's a blessing that comes when people understand that we have served them, when we have uh, bent our knee and washed feet, because it becomes personal, it becomes real, and Christianity becomes tangible. God doesn't mind us having names and that our names would be known. It's just what is the motive behind why we are doing what we're doing. So in secret, it's not performed for the sake of recognition, but it's performed for the sake of love. So here we are in Matthew 6 again. Okay, We've hung out in Matthew 6 quite a bit already because Jesus in Matthew 6 is going to mention this same concept three different times. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sound countenance. Now, Fasting, this one could almost be like the sacrifice where you are suffering in body so that something good could happen, right? So you're willing to give up something, that sacrifice it so that someone else may have. Just imagine it that way. For they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. And how many people disfigure their faces when they sacrifice, when they're going through difficulty for the nobility of it? And yet they disfigure their faces. They're like, how are you doing? Really, it's really been hard as I've been giving up my life to serve others. You don't disfigure your face for this. 
Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, or for our sake here, to be sacrificing, to be suffering. But your Father who is in the secret place and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So here's a, a rule of thumb. If, you, if it's you doing the heroic deed, do it secretly for Christ's sake. Now imagine that I witness, and so if it's you seeing the heroic deed, like let's say you witness a heroic deed, I witness a heroic deed, honor it openly for Christ's sake. One of the things that I think is very important is to commend and to honor what we see that is Christ-like. And so they may do it privately, but remember, God rewards openly. And so we as the church are oftentimes part of that reward openly. It's like, did you see what this guy did? I just want to declare that I saw it, I appreciate it, and I, I saw Christ in and through it. And there's something that builds the body in and through both of these actions. The willingness to do it privately and secretly on our behalf, the willingness to commend and to honor as the body that which we see even done in secret. Now, some people have asked us, no, I'm giving this anonymously, do not say anything about it. And we don't even though it's hard sometimes, like, ah, that would be fun to say who it was. But that's part of the beauty of it, because sometimes God is leading someone to truly remove that off the table. At the same time, it's a beautiful thing when the body witnesses someone heeding the Holy Spirit and doing a sacrificial thing for the glory of God. It's a beautiful and wonderful thing. So we're going to go to Dunkirk. We're in 1940. Dunkirk evacuation is going to happen between May 26th and June 4th, Remember, May 10th is when all hell is going to break loose on Holland, Belgium, and France, okay? So we are 16 days after that where the BEF, which is the British Expeditionary Force, it's the military arm, the fighting arm of Great Britain, is going to be over there with a couple hundred thousand troops, and they are going to be attempting to stave off this blitzkrieg from Hitler, and there's, it's just like going south and quick. Now... This is a very, very difficult situation for not just France, who's going to fall like a house of cards, but for Great Britain, because they're not on their own territory, and they have no place to turn. They're, the coast is at their side, and they are surrounded almost instantaneously, fighting for their life. And the last orders, this is also tricky because you have Neville Chamberlain, who's going to be replaced on May 10th. You guys remember that from a previous message. So May 10th, when this invasion is happening, is the exact same day that Winston Churchill is becoming prime minister. However, the BEF, a man named Lord Gort, is actually the commander-in-chief over there. His last instructions were from Neville Chamberlain. And his leader is going to switch out in the middle of this, and they're going to lose contact. And so it's a very, very dicey situation. It's a hard situation to be a leader in. And so I'm just giving you that background. Uh, Dunkirk, uh, as far as it's a symbol, it's just a, you know, it's a town, it's a port town uh, on the uh, shores of France. And so when you say Dunkirk, people oftentimes are going to think World War II, they're going to think the great evacuation because it's such a symbolic moment. Uh, Winston Churchill calls it the miracle of deliverance. So it's a big, big event. Uh, there's at least a picture, which I think is, is pretty cool. You see all these troops are lining up in a systemized way to actually get on these boats and get out. It was, it was a monstrous achievement uh, of down to the details of how they get the boats there. Most of the boats could not get up on the shore, so that they had to take smaller boats and take them out to the other boats. And so the system of it is 
miraculous in and of itself. The administration of this uh, evacuation was extraordinary. So uh, just to help you out, here's now if you're getting this via podcast, you just missed a picture of the beaches of Dunkirk uh, with a whole bunch of soldiers waiting to board. And now we have a map of, we can see the shoreline of, it says England on the map, but the, uh, the southern edge of Great Britain, which is England. And you see the Strait of Dover, uh, you know, the English Channel, which is basically going between, and this is France on the other side, but you're going to see Belgium and you're going to see the Netherlands, Holland, up there. And Germany is going to be, you know, over to the right off the, uh, off the screen. But you're going to see Dunkirk there on the other side of the Strait of Dover. And uh, next to it is Calais, which Calais is going to become a very, very critical place because of the sweeping, it's called the pincer movement from the, uh, and it's sort of like the, the pincers uh, of, like I always think of like a crab, uh, you know, it's like it comes around or it snaps onto something. That's exactly what's happening. They're trying to surround the army. And so Calais is basically going to be the key place to save all the men in Dunkirk, to help them have enough time. They need two to three days to get out. But this pincer movement is closing, and there's only, I mean, we're running out of options of how we're going to do this. There's not enough land uh, between there to create enough time because the, the German army is superior and just dominating in the field. So as you, uh, I zoom in, but it makes it rather bitmapped when you do. You see Calais there, and you see Dunkirk. And so all these places, if you study the Battle of Dunkirk and the excavation, all these, uh, these places around you would hear mention of because they're all going to be strategic places. I'm going to specifically focus on what I'm going to call the secret nobleman of Calais because the reason this worked is because men gave up their lives that most people don't even know about. And so I'm going to call them the secret nobleman of Calais, laying down their lives that the 300,000 could escape. So in Winston Churchill's memoirs, he's going to give us a behind-the-scenes take on this of what's going on in the high offices that most of the public wouldn't know. Some days earlier, I had placed the conduct of the defense of the channel, ports, directly under the chiefs of the imperial general staff, with whom I was in constant touch. I now resolved that Calais should be fought to the death. What that means, the moment they decide, that Churchill decided that Calais would be fought to the death, that means the men will not retreat. They will not join the, the evacuation. And that no evacuation by sea could be allowed to the garrison, which consisted of one battalion of the Rifle Brigade, one of the 60th Rifles, the Queen Victoria Rifles, 229th Anti-Tank Battery, RA, and a battalion of the Royal Tank Regiment with 21 light and 27 cruiser tanks and an equal number of Frenchmen. It was painful thus to sacrifice these splendid trained troops of which we had so few for the doubtful advantage of gaining two or perhaps three days, and the unknown uses that could be made of these days. The Secretary of State for War and the CIGS agreed to this hard measure. The final decision not to relieve the garrison was taken on the evening of May 26. Till then, the destroyers were held ready. Eden and Ironside, uh, they're, they're both uh, counselors in the war office with Winston Churchill, were with me at the Admiralty. We three came out from dinner and at 9 p.m. did the deed. It involved Eden's own regiment. Could you imagine? Eden, Anthony Eden had to make a choice to sacrifice actually his own regiment that he served in, that he was, I mean, there's a brotherhood in a regiment. And he literally, he knows this, the importance of those two to three days and he knows he's, they're going to have to sacrifice these men. These men will likely not make it out alive. It involved Eden's own regiment in which he had long served and fought in the previous struggle. 
One has to eat and drink in war, but I could not help feeling physically sick as we afterwards sat silent at the table. Calais was the crux. Many other causes might have prevented the deliverance of Dunkirk, but it is certain that the three days gained by the defense of Calais enabled the Gravelines waterline to be held, and that without this, all would have been cut off and lost. Now what's interesting is when you study Dunkirk, you oftentimes don't know about the secret noblemen of Calais. You have to dig deeper to actually understand why they had those two to three days. Because most people just are amazed that 300,000 got out. And we focus on the fact that, oh, and that fisherman actually gave up his boat. We have a tendency to think of it from what is taking place right in front of us as the British public. But there's those that are actually dying and giving up their life that it's hard for the war office to talk about, if that makes sense. Yes, we are going to sacrifice your sons, oh, Great Britain, so that we can get 300,000 out. Those things aren't readily <laughs> talked about. And by the way, yes, we know that uh, your son is in the, whatever, the 229th, uh -huh, and, but we're going to sacrifice him so that we can get others out. You, you don't talk about those types of things. And so a lot of this is buried. It was a silent sacrifice. So our job, if we're Great Britain in this, we must not forget because there are, there's silent nobility being practiced in the body of Christ and those weaker members, like we oftentimes talk about uh, feet in the body of Christ. If you're called to be a big toe in the body of Christ, a big toe is important for balance. There's all sorts of wonderful attributes of it, but it's covered up by a sock and usually by a shoe. And it does its work in secret. And yet sometimes you need to remove that shoe or remove that sock and wash that feet. And you need to cherish the hidden members of the body. And actually, that's what we're commissioned to do in the body of Christ is to not forget. Don't just focus on the nose, the ears, the eyes, that great smile in the body of Christ, but to recognize that there are those that are serving unseen, and those unseen members are of tremendous value in the kingdom of heaven. So we mustn't forget that one battalion of the rifle brigade, that one battalion of the 60th rifles, the Queen Victoria rifles, the 229th anti-tank battery RA, and that battalion of the Royal Tank Regiment that laid down their lives. It's very easy for us to forget because most of us don't even know what those are. We don't know what they did. We don't understand what's going on over there in France. We're just happy that our family got home, that our brother or our dad got home. We're just happy about that, but we oftentimes fail to remember those that lay down their life or sacrifice themselves so that we have our dad back. They died in anonymity it is our job to note heroism and remember silent heroism as if it is so precious. There's a reason for that because I'm going to start aiming towards the cross very soon here and you're going to recognize that what is going to happen on the cross is very, very similar. Now, you could say, well, it's out in the open. Yeah, but most people have no idea what he's actually doing. They have no idea what he's bearing. They see a criminal hanging on a cross. They don't recognize that it's the Son of God come to seek and save the lost, come to crush the head of the serpent, come to become a, a curse for us. They don't understand what he is doing. We do. So therefore, it is our job to note heroism and to remember silent heroism. Cherishing is one of the greatest pictures of heavenly manhood that exists on earth. So when we see these shadows, these reflections of the work of the cross in this world, we note it and we remember it. So I want to do a case study on a man named Lord Gort. That's typically how he's enunciated. There's all sorts of names for this guy, okay? I'm going to show you his actual name. 
John Standish Surtees Prendergast Vereker 6th Viscount Gort. And that's actually not his full name. I'm just giving you the first line so you can try and digest that. Could you imagine? And who are you? My name is John Standish Surtees Prendergast Vereker 6th Viscount Gort. Who has a name like that? But that's not his full name because he was also decorated in World War I quite extensively. So his name... John Standish, Surtees, Prendergast, Vericker, Sixth Viscount, Gort, and in his official title, you have VC, GCB, CBE, DSO, and two bars, MVOMC. If you look up this guy in Wikipedia, that's actually what comes up as his name. When you look up me, you see Eric Ludi. <laughs> it's like, wow, uh, this guy has some, uh, some story to his life. He is one of the most decorated men you will ever study. That's why I'm picking him out as a case study. He's an extraordinary hero yet he's going to be forgotten. And this man is so significant in the history of Great Britain, and yet it's weird, but it's almost like he's going to be buried in front of our eyes. So I'm going to go backwards through the, you know, all the alphabet soup at the end of his name. So what you're going to see is the highest medal that he's going to receive, the most distinguished is the VC, which is the Victoria Cross, okay? All the way down to the MC. So I'm going to go backwards and show you what this man is decorated with. The military cross, the MC, is the third-level military decoration awarded to officers and other ranks of the British Armed Forces and formally awarded to officers of the other Commonwealth countries. The Royal Victorian Order is a dynastic order of knighthood established in 1896 by Queen Victoria. It recognizes distinguished personal service to the monarch of the Commonwealth realms, members of the monarch's family, or to any viceroy or senior representative of the monarch. So, by the way, I'm, like, taking a quick picture of these in Wikipedia. I didn't study medals very deeply. I'm just like kink, 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 kink. So you can at least understand who this man is. A metal bar or metal clasp, remember he has two bars, is a thin metal bar attached to the ribbon of a military decoration, civil decoration or other medal. It most commonly indicates the campaign or operation the recipient received the award for and multiple bars in the same medal are used to indicate that the recipient has met the criteria for receiving the medal in multiple theaters. The Distinguished Service Order is a military decoration of the United Kingdom and formerly of other parts of the Commonwealth awarded for meritorious or distinguished service by officers of the armed forces during wartime, typically in actual combat. Since 1993, all ranks have been eligible. The Most Excellent Order of the British Empire is a British order of chivalry rewarding contributions to the arts and sciences, wor uh, sciences works with charitable and welfare organizations and public service outside the civil service. It was established on June 4, 1917 by King George V. The Most Honorable Order of the Bath is a British order of chivalry founded by George I on 18th May of 1725. The name derives from the elaborate medieval ceremony for appointing a knight, which involves bathing as one of its elements. Okay? The knights so created were known as the Knights of the Bath. So he's one of those too, guys. I, I don't know what the ceremony looks like, but uh, I don't want to use my imagination. The Victoria Cross of the VC is the most highest and most prestigious award of the British honors system. It is awarded for valor in the presence of the enemy to members of the British Armed Forces. It may be awarded posthumously. It was previously awarded to Commonwealth. He's, gonna, he's going to actually gain the Victoria Cross in World War I. This isn't even talking about what he does in World War II. Okay? This is like what he is even coming into World War I. This guy is one of the most decorated heroes out of World War I. There's a reason why he's going to gain the position of the commander-in-chief of the British Expeditionary Force. So when the war is starting over in France, over those 200,000 men, you know who's over them? Lord Gort. He's the obvious choice. Everyone knows it. However, events are going to take place on May 10th, 
Remember, this guy is serving under Neville Chamberlain. He's appointed by Neville Chamberlain. And now Winston Churchill is going to come in. Everything's going to be disrupted because Germany is going to blitzkrieg Holland, Belgium, and come sweeping into France, which is going to throw everything in disorder because France has fallen to pieces. Great Britain with 200,000 men can't stand against millions. I mean, how are you supposed to do this? They don't have tanks over there. The Germans have tanks. They are completely surrounded in a matter of minutes, it seems. Belgium is going to collapse. France is collapsing around them. And so this man was called to attack on a different line. Instead, he is going to choose to retreat to Dunkirk. However, his decisions are going to come under great scrutiny in the years to come to the point where he is going to be put as the scapegoat or as the fall guy for anything bad that happened. Any loss of life is going to be pinned on this guy. And yet, what this man did is one of the most heroic things that any general has ever done. It's really, this is one of the bravest men ever in British history. And even what he's going to do in this battle is legendary. But most people don't remember it that way. So this guy is decorated, but unappreciated. You don't know that yet. I haven't gone into it. But he's brave as a lion, but he's criticized and deemed the failure. Unappreciated heroism. I don't know how that feels to you to think of unappreciated heroism. To think of doing a heroic deed to lay down your life for someone and even the person you lay down your life for spits on you. I mean, that, that doesn't feel right. Something about it seems off. When your good is unnoticed, criticized, unappreciated, or even outright rejected. Jehovah via Isaiah. So now I'm going to set you up for something. We're in Isaiah 52, which is, of course, right before Isaiah 53. Now remember, we're going to add, humans are going to add the breaks in chapters and things like that. And so at the end of Isaiah 52, you're going to see the beginnings of Isaiah 53. It's talking about the Messiah. Very specifically, it's talking about the cross, which is written 750 years before Christ. Behold my servant. Servant is capitalized. Everyone, every Jew knows this is talking about the Messiah, the one who will come to do the work. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled to be very high. He will be very decorated. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage, his countenance, his face, was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations, Kings shall shut their mouths at him for what had been, not been told them they shall see and what they had not heard they shall consider. This is going into Isaiah 53, which is who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for he shall grow up before him. Who shall? The servant, the Messiah, as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness and when we see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him not. <laughs> we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. So you see the, the, the tenor of this whole thing. It's like, He'll be marred to the point that he'll be unrecognizable, maybe to the point beyond any other man. His form, he has no beauty. He is unattractive. Well, he's hanging like a bloody pulp on a cross. He's talking about the cross. He will be despised and rejected. We're going to esteem him stricken and smitten of God, afflicted. Oh, he's, he's deserving of this penalty. 
when in actuality he's carrying our griefs. He's wounded for our transgressions. He's actually sacrificing his life on our behalf, but we don't see it. We instead think of him as a criminal. We think he's deserving of this. That's a hard way to suffer, guys. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He doesn't even defend himself. He's silent as a lamb unto slaughter. That is an extraordinary statement of the way that the God of heaven is going to come and dwell within the body of a man and live out his heroic deeds. He is going to do charitable deeds, but he's not going to be doing them necessarily before men, to be appreciated and esteemed by men. He's going to do them before the bar of heaven. He is going to atone for our sins, be a propitiation offering. He knows what he's doing, even though we don't. And he's willing to be misunderstood, despised, or rejected, a worm and no man. My, my follow-up question, even to my own soul, but also to yours, is are we? Are we willing to do that sort of labor, God labor in these bodies, that is deemed opposite in the eyes of men, where they look at us as the fools, the idiots, the crackpots, that we're wasting our life. What are we doing? Or even as criminals. The silent heroism of Lord Gort. I never got a chance to interview this man, and I wish I could because I have questions for him. It's like I feel like I understand this man in a strange way. And so I'm just going to go through the silent heroism of Lord Gort. So this is Winston Churchill in 1948, I believe he wrote this. Now remember, all of this is unfolding in 1940. Lord Gort is going to have eight years before this is going to be written, and in those eight years, he's not going to look good. And by the way, he's going to die in 1946. He's going to die as a lamb silent, never having the opportunity to defend himself or to speak Winston Churchill will speak on his behalf here. Gort resolved to abandon the attack to the southward to plug the gap which a Belgian capitulation was about to open in the north and to march to the sea. At this moment, here was the only hope of saving anything from destruction or surrender. At 6 p.m., he ordered the 5th and the 50th Divisions to join the und British Corps to fill the impending Belgian gap. He informed General Blanchard, who, was succeeded, who had succeeded Balot in command of the First Army Group, of his action. This officer, acknowledging the force of events, gave orders at 11.30 p.m. to withdraw on the 26th to a line behind the Lease Canal, west of Lille, with a view of forming a bridgehead around Dunkirk. Confirming the orders of the 26th, Lord Gort received from the War Office a telegram dispatched at 1 p.m. on the 27th, telling him that his task henceforth was to evacuate the maximum force possible. I had informed Monsieur Renault, I don't know how to speak French, remember, the day before that the policy was to evacuate the British expeditionary force and had requested him to issue corresponding orders. Four British divisions in the whole of the first French army were now in dire peril of being cut off around Lille. The trap had taken two and a half days to close and in that time the British divisions and a great part of the French, first French army, except the the 5th Corps, which was lost, withdrew in good order through the gap in spite of the French having only horse transport and the main road to Dunkirk being already cut and the secondary roads filled with retiring troops, long trains of transport, and many thousands of refugees. 
In the early hours of the 28th, the Belgium army surrendered. Lord Gort received the formal intimation of this only one hour before the event, but the collapse had been foreseen three days earlier, and in one fashion or another, the gap was plugged. All that day, the escape of the British army hung in the balance. It was a severe experience for me, bearing so heavy an overall responsibility to watch during these days in flickering glimpses this drama in which control was impossible and intervention more likely to do harm than good. There is no doubt that by pressing in all loyalty the Weigand plan of retirement to the Somme as long as we did, our dangers already so grave were increased. But Gort's decision, listen to this, but Gort's decision in which we speedily concurred to abandon the Weigand plan and to march to the sea was executed by him and his staff with masterly skill and will ever be regarded as a brilliant episode in British military annals. However, right after the war, you're going to see that all these under-generals and the French are going to actually criticize Lord Gort publicly in their memoirs and say that he blew it. He was supposed to fulfill the way gun plan. He should have done this. Instead, he led to this. That's why Winston Churchill in 1948 is going to say, actually, what he did was masterful. And it's even regarded with brilliant, as a brilliant episode in all British military annals. That's the prime minister speaking on it. However, could you imagine what it's like being Lord Gort? Of course, he died in 1946, unable to speak, but... All of us sort of have to weigh that. Are we willing to be Lord Gort in this story? Because I'm going to declare that he's going to look like a hero at this exact moment, okay? Gort stained to the last, rear guard fed by planes. He, uh, Gort there in the right, uh, that's a little picture of Gort and some troops uh, over there. Outpost win vital hours for BEF. Gort stays till last. See that? It's like, yeah, Gort. Gort! However, there's something the public doesn't know. Gort is planning on staying to last. He's willing to die over there. But there's something the public doesn't know. So the public perception in Great Britain is Lord Gort, fearless! Lord Gort, brave! Lord Gort, the man for the hour! Something's going to happen behind the scenes that's going to make Lord Gort look bad in the public. Winston Churchill writes about it. Knowing well the character of Lord Gort, I wrote out of I wrote out in my own hand the following order to him, which was sent officially by the war office at 2 p.m. on the 30th. Continue to defend the present perimeter. This is the letter to Lord Gort. Continue to defend the present perimeter to the utmost in order to cover maximum evacuation, now proceeding well. Report every three hours through La Panne. If we can still communicate, we shall send you an order to return to England with such officers as you may choose at the moment. Is that... Uh a fire alarm, by the way. All right, we'll, st we'll try and stay focused in here, guys. It's a trouble light. So what's happening here, by the way, is Lord Gort is going to be commanded to evacuate. Now remember, Lord Gort is the general. He's the commander-in-chief of everything that's going on over there. And he's, I mean, as a man, your job is to stay with your troops, not to abandon them. Winston Churchill, who is the prime minister, who is the figurehead, I mean, he's the voice of all authority in this man's home country. He's the voice of the king, if you will, to Lord Gort, is going to say uh, that you need to return home when we deem your commands, when you redeem your command so reduced that it can be handed over to a corps commander. You should now nominate this commander. If communications are broken, you are to hand over and return as specified when your effective fighting force does not exceed the equivalent of three divisions. This is in accordance with correct military procedure and no personal discretion is left to you in this matter. You have no ability to decide otherwise. 
On political grounds, it would be a needless triumph to the enemy to capture you when only a small force sorry, remained under your orders. The corps commander chosen by you should be ordered to carry on the defense in conjunction with the French in evacuation, whether from Dunkirk or the beaches. But when in his judgment no further organized evacuation is possible and no further proportionate damage can be inflicted on the enemy, he is authorizing consultation with the senior French commander to, to, to capitulate formally to avoid useless slaughter. Lord Gord is being commanded to leave and basically abandon his troops. He's commanded to do it. Says, and Winston Churchill is saying, and you cannot come up with any excuse, any loophole to get out of it. When you get to this point, you're coming home because I do not want you falling into Hitler's hands. I mean, it makes sense if you look at it from the British side, but imagine being Lord Gort. Because remember, fearless, the man for the hour, brave as can be, he's going to stay with them. Lord Gort stays, front of the paper. Lord Gort leaves? And Lord Gort can't speak about it. You can't talk about military affairs. You can't talk about strategy. You can't say anything. You're not allowed to just talk to the press and sh share your opinion of what's going on with you personally. Lord Gort is silent before we could call them mocking crowds. He suddenly becomes a worm in no man. Oops, I have it right there. Whoa. Public perception in Great Britain. Lord Gort abandoning the troops. Lord Gort, an embarrassment. Lord Gort, a coward. I don't know how you handle that, but that, that's a hard one for a man right there. I mean, especially Lord Gort, who is like, he won the Victoria Cross. This man had an artery blown out, you know, with a piece of shrapnel in his arm, and he was being carried off, he was passed out, he was being carried off in a stretcher, realizes in World War I he's being carried off in a stretcher, and says, I'm not leaving my men. Hops off the stretcher with his arm, you know, like, you know, wrapped up, artery busted, and goes running back in to fight the enemy so he could stand with his men. Okay, this is not the kind of guy that you should say is an embarrassment and a coward. However, he's having to live it out. Right now, he's being commanded back home. Public perception in Great Britain. Okay, Lord Gort, you know what he's made? He was the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. That's the highest position <laughs> that you can get in the military sense, right? I mean, you could be secretary of war, you could be prime minister, but I mean, look, the guy is commander-in-chief on the ground. And he's going to be made, back in Great Britain, the Inspector General of Training. Now, see, what, what do you think the public thinks? Uh, he's getting what he deserves. They think it's a punishment. You know what's actually happening? The reason Lord Gord is not sent back over to Europe is because the forces in Europe are not big enough to give the dignity to a man of his position to lead them. They don't yet have a military force strong enough over in Europe for him to lead. So they're waiting. They put an undergeneral over it instead, and they're waiting for the time. That's actually what's happening. So, reality in Great Britain, when Lord Gord is made Inspector General of Training, to dignify him, they are waiting for the BEF to build back up in Europe to justify his presence. But that never happens. And before they actually bring him back into the commander-in-chief position, they have a crisis, and that is the Germans are threatening to invade Spain. And so they pick their best man, Lord Gort, and stick him as the governor of Gibraltar. Now, uh, let me go through why that's a challenge for Lord Gort. So the public perception is he's made governor of Gibraltar. Aha, says the British public. I knew it. He's a scapegoat. They're trying to figure out how to dispose of him. They're embarrassed by what he did. Actually, they can't say why he's moving there. 
But the problem is the governor of Gibraltar in British history is a position that you give to the gray-headed men that are about to die as a final signal of tribute. In other words, where you want to honor someone, but they're no use to you in the field anymore, so you make them the governor of Gibraltar. So who becomes the governor of Gibraltar but Lord Gort? But the reason he's becoming that is so that he's the head man in Gibraltar to build up the defenses to prepare for a German invasion of Spain so that they can have a counterattack. It's actually one of the most strategic spots in the war at the time, and no one knows that. They look at it as, oh, they're trying to get rid of them. And Lord Gort can't say a thing. So the reality in Great Britain when he's made governor of Gibraltar, at that time in 1941, it appeared the Germans were going to invade Spain. This was a critical and super strategic point. Who do they put? They put their key man there. Now we have another challenge. As you know, the, the events turn, and now Malta becomes this critical spot. So they realize what he did in Gibraltar to fortify it and make it strong, they need him to do the same thing in Malta, which is on the front lines. No one knows this back in Great Britain, by the way. And the governor of Malta, you know, the governor of Gibraltar is like a dignified position, but the governor of Malta is a lower position on the ranks. And so he goes from being the governor of Gibraltar now it's like, oh, he must really have done a bad job of being the governor of Gibraltar because he gets to be the governor of Malta now. And so, oh, yet another low post for the previous commander-in-chief of the BEF, the governor of Malta? I mean, that's like laugh out loud. That's, you know, we're scrubbing toilets now, Lord Gort. When in actuality, let's, let's look at what is actually happening. At that time in 1942, Malta was the front line. Lord Gort's famous courage was called upon to hold the line. And he did. Isn't it funny? No, none of us know that. None of us know about Lord Gort's great work. We just know about his failure in Dunkirk. Was it a failure? It wasn't even a failure. He saved 300,000 men. And yet, for whatever reason, this man is silent going unto the slaughter. He's a great man, a decorated hero, and, but his sacrifice is silent. So public perception in Great Britain. Lord Gort dies in 1946. The criticisms for his military decisions in Dunkirk begin to flood in after the war. He is unable to write his memoirs. Almost every general writes memoirs. It just seems to be, and they always defend all their decisions. Lord Gort can't write a memoir. He's dead. So he's unable to write his memoirs. He is silent as a lamb unto slaughter. I was, you know, the movie uh, Free Burma Rangers, which I know many of us in here actually saw on Tuesday night, it reminded me of Victor Marx, uh, who's a good friend of our ministry, good friend of mine, and who has done a lot of work in, uh, over in uh, Mosul, Iraq. And the same way that we saw the, uh, what's their name, the Eubanks, David and Karen Eubanks uh, over there. And so I actually texted him afterwards, and he sent me a, uh, a post that he had on Facebook. He hadn't seen it yet, and he was really struggling if he could see it, because uh, for various reasons, I would, I would encourage you to read the, the post that he has. It's very, very powerful. But as I, as I was preparing this, it was interesting, the overlap. Because so much of what Victor has done is not understood by anyone. In fact, most people that hear about Victor being over in Mosul, Iraq, are sort of like, what's he doing over there? <laughs> why, why is he doing that? I mean, what, what a strange thing to be doing. And you know, he'll, he'll tell you that he loves ISIS soldiers. That he, I mean, there's an incredible picture that he sent out to me, just texted me. I don't know what the reason was that he texted, but it was him in a prison cell with an ISIS soldier. 
I mean, it's a profound picture where he personally visited this man to share the gospel with him. He brought in a translator to share the gospel. It's, it's deeply moving, but it's unappreciated, if you want to say it that way. It's like, kill the ISIS soldiers. You don't love them and share the gospel with them. And so what this man has done has been totally misrepresented in so many different ways. And so he's struggling with this movie coming out because it probably is bringing all those things to the surface, you know, that what this work has done is so misunderstood. But his two teenage kids go and watch this movie on Monday night. And this is his, his little clip in response. Later this evening, my two teenage kids soberly walked into the house after seeing it, it said, but Free Burma Rangers, and both gave me long hugs. I held back the tears. They looked at me differently, and I knew instantly the depth of impact the film made on their hearts. They looked at me with deep soul eyes and wanted to say something, but really couldn't. So I asked them and tried to give them words they struggled to find. Did the movie help you better understand what dad does in the worst areas overseas? They both expressed yes with relief and, ca and, and came and hugged me a second time. We are not guaranteed the understanding hug of appreciation. There's going to be things that you do in your life that are, there's an agony because it's misrepresented in people's hearts. They don't recognize what you're doing, that your desire is to serve Jesus, and yet sometimes it gets twisted. Your show of goodness and sacrifice gets twisted and turned into some type of malignant uh, agenda. Can't tell you how many times the things that I've done have been translated as me being up to something, being, me being up to no good because I did this. It's like, could it be possible that I just did that because I loved that person? No, that's not a possibility. <laughs> and so it's hard. These things can be hard. And I've had moments where I wish there could be an understanding hug where someone could just say, I get it. And they're crying. They're like, I get it. And then they just hug me. It's like, thank you. I, I get what you're doing. I get, and I understand why you do it. That, that's nice, but it's not guaranteed. For us as Christians, oh, it's guaranteed in heaven. When we get to heaven, oh, you got the understanding hug up there. Every one of the saints will see it clearly. However, down here, you have to be willing to do it silently. You have to be willing to do it unappreciated. Are we willing to serve unnoticed, unappreciated, and even to have our good evil spoken of in order that the love, the goodness, the heroism, and the Dunkirk-like rescue of Jesus may be expressed? Jesus is going to be the rear guard, and he is going to hold off that enemy so that we can find escape and redemption. He is going to give up his life, and most of the world does not even appreciate the fact that he has offered them an opportunity out. They're still standing on the shores of Dunkirk throwing rocks at their Savior. Meanwhile, he's not only standing there and taking the hit, but he has a boat for them. He's the way to the Father, the way across that channel. He's given us everything we need for deliverance, but most don't appreciate his heroism. That's where we must take note of it. We must cherish it and share it with the world. Matthew 6, 5 through 6, Jesus Christ speaking. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, when you do your heavenly work, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. By the way, Jesus will be rewarded openly. <laughs> every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.
However, he did his heroic work in secret. He was willing to take our punishment upon himself, even if the crowd that was looking on did not see it. And even if the crowd that looks on, even today, 2,000 years later, does not see it, he still did it for them. He still was willing to sacrifice his own life, lay down his own reputation, become a worm and no man, that we could escape the beaches of Dunkirk. Father, how we show appreciation properly is, sometimes feels beyond us. How we worship you and show our gratefulness. Lord, we fall short. But I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would see your model. We would see the template that you've given us of being willing to do our loving work. Not for the eyes and the appreciation of men, but for you. Lord, I pray that we would decide in our inner man today to live for you, truly, to live for you, to give for you, to fast for you, to pray for you, to not do these things that the world would applaud, but to do these things that you would be glorified and the world would be saved. Lord, we love you and trust you. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.